Well, good morning. Before I get started, I want to remind you that next Sunday morning, I am going to be with you uh, the whole hour, live and in the flesh, and um, looking forward to taking a few minutes to uh, talk with you about the question I asked last week. Uh, if you don't remember that question or if you weren't here last week, it really has to do with how would your vision of what we do at the Beacon every Sunday be altered, or would it, if we thought of that service almost as if it were a satellite of what is of what we do it here at First Baptist Church. Not that we're trying to alienate or separate, but just how would it, if there was a certain amount of autonomy that went on in the worship experience that goes on there at the Beacon, would that change the way you think about inviting your friends? Would it change the way we do worship? Would it change maybe the time we do? What, would, what might would be different or maybe nothing would be different? But I won't know that until I get a chance to look you in the eye and ask you that question. So next week we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. Today, though, I've got a teaching for you that happens every now and then, and it always surprises me when it does, but it probably shouldn't. You probably know this, but um, you may not think of it. In my role as a pastor, I have really two parts of the process of determining what God wants me to share with you on a Sunday morning. First, there's the student. I get into the Word, I tear it apart, I go back to the original languages, I, I pray over it, I think over it, I make all kinds of notes, I uh, read commentaries and other sermons and, and, and watch videos of other people who've talked about the passage and just get as much information as I can about the passage. And, but then invariably, inevitably, I come to a point of saying, okay, out of all of these things, what does God want me to share on Sunday morning? Because obviously I can't share everything I've learned about a passage. And uh, that kind of happened this past week. I had all of this information, all of these different ways we could approach this text. And um, I don't know what you thought when you were listening to it. In one sense, it's kind of a simple story. But on the other hand, there's a lot of depth to the story. And um, so I want to share with you just a little bit about what we could have talked about. And then we're going to spend most of our time on what I believe God wants us to hear. But that role between being a student of the Bible and being a preacher of the Bible has that winnowing, thinning, filtering process that we have to do. So I want to invite you to pray with me, and then after we pray, we'll uh, look at chapter 9 of 1 Samuel and just see all that God has for us today. All right, would you join me as we pray? Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be called your sons and daughters. I'm so thankful that you saw us in our sinfulness. You saw us in our weakness. You saw us in our unworthiness. And out of your great love for us, not for anything that we could ever do or, or, or return to you, but purely out of your love for us, you saw your image stamped in us, marred by sin, and yet because of that we are fearfully, wonderfully made, and so you sent your son to pay the penalty of the sin that has separated us from you so that we could be brought into relationship with you. And one of the byproducts of that, one of the fruits of that is the, what we're doing right now with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, in your presence, thanking you for that. May we never take it for granted. And as we open your word today, I pray that you will speak to us, that you will speak to our hearts. I know that I am a fallible vessel but your word is infallible, and I pray that it will 
by your spirit be planted in the way that you would want it to be for your honor and glory and for the name of Christ. We pray. Amen. Well, if you haven't already done it, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Um, I asked that the whole chapter be read because I want you to get the whole, the feel of the whole story. And it is an interesting story. Actually, we begin a new section at chapter 9. I don't know if you remember, you don't necessarily have to turn back to it, but at the beginning of chapter 1, we had a little genealogy that led us up to a little baby born to a woman who up until that point had been barren and unable to bear children by the name of Samuel. And that baby was born, he was given back to the Lord, and chapters 1 through 8 basically center around the, the life of Samuel as he becomes a, a prophet, a judge of the Israelite people, the last great judge before they ask for a king. We have the battle where the ark is taken by the Philistines and all that that w w went through, the returning of the ark, the people asking for a king because unfortunately Samuel, uh, I'm ashamed to say it, but like Eli, did not train his sons to be just as godly as he was. And so Samuel's sons were not honoring God the way they should and the people began to ask for a king. We talked about that in Bible study this morning. And then when we get to chapter 9, verse 1, we have a new genealogy, which should trigger to us there's something new that's about to happen. If you notice in verse 1 of chapter 9, it says, There was an influential man of Benjamin named Kish, son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphia, son of a Benjaminite. He had a son named Saul, an impressive young man. There was no one more impressive among the Israelites than he. He stood a head taller than anyone else. So this tells us that we are starting a new section. We had the section about Samuel. Now we're going to have a section about Saul. And eventually in a few weeks we'll have our section about young David. And so as I was studying this passage, there were these huge, I guess we would call them meta-themes, these, these big ideas there's still a line from Phil Vischer, uh, uh, Veggie Tales. These big ideas that could easily have been our topic for today. For example, one of the biggest themes in chapter 9 is God's control over events in our lives that seem to be very, very random. Okay? In this chapter, we have the story of some donkeys that get lost. Look with me at verse 3. We, we have this issue of some donkeys that belong to Kish. And they wander off. And so in verse 3, it says, One day the donkeys of Saul's father Kish wandered off, and Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the attendants with you and go look for the donkeys. Saul and his attendant went through the hill country of Ephraim and then through the region of Shalisha, but they didn't find them. They went through the region of Shalim, nothing, and then they went through the Benjaminite region, but still didn't find them. And then in verse 5, it says, When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to the attendant who was with him, come on, let's go back or my father will stop worrying about the donkeys and start worrying about us. So we have this seemingly random event where Saul's dad uh, loses the uh, donkeys and they wander off and Saul goes out with one of his servants to look for them. You know, it's like anything, you, your dog gets out of the fence and you go out and you start wandering around looking for the dog. Is that, a, is that a God event? Well, no, it's just a lost dog event, you know. And for Saul, this wasn't a God event. This was just a lost donkey event. And his dad sent him out and said, hey, we need to find those donkeys and get them back home. So would you take a servant and go and look for them? But now I want you to jump all the way down with me, if you would, to verse 
let me find it for you. Verse eight, um, verse 15. In verse 15, we see another side to this story. This thing that seems such a random event actually has a deeper meaning. Because we know, because we've heard the story, Saul is about to meet Samuel, all right? But look at what it says in verse 15 of 1 Samuel chapter 9. Now, the day before Saul's arrival, the Lord had informed Samuel. Now, listen to what God told him. At this time tomorrow, I will, what? I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will save them from the hand of the Philistines because I have seen the affliction of my people for their cry has come to me. In verse 17, it says, When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man I told you about. He will rule over my people. So this seemingly random event in Saul's life actually was planned by God right from square one because God specifically said to Samuel, I am sending this man to you. And so I thought a few months ago, this is exactly what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how the seemingly random events in our lives can be used by God. And that's a great point. Well, as I studied it more, I also realized there were some things we learned about Saul in this passage that tell us that he probably was not the best guy to be the king of Israel. For one thing, how in the world can you not find a large group of donkeys that are just wandering around, you know, out in the wilderness? He wasn't a very good, very good shepherd or, 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 or donkey herd or whatever you call them. I mean, he looks for three days, and they're donkeys, by, for heaven's sake. They're not mice or, or guinea pigs. They're donkeys. And you would think animals that large in a, in a group should be found. Saul just appears to be a little bit um, inept, perhaps we might say. You've got to remember, throughout Israel's history, the great leaders of Israel have always been shepherds. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses. All of them were shepherds. All of them had this image of being able to lead things and manage things and care for their flocks, which was a metaphor for the way they would care for God's people. Hmm, yeah, not so much Saul. But that's not the only thing we find out. You'll remember back in chapters 4 and 5, the Bible said in 1 Samuel that Samuel was known all over Israel. He was the most famous man of his day in all the nation of Israel. And yet, when they get to Ramah, because that was in the land of Zuf, if you go back to chapter 1, you'll see that Zuf was Samuel's great-great-grandfather. And so they come into this territory. They come almost certainly to the town of Ramah where Samuel lived. And Saul has to be told by his servant, well, you know what? There is a seer, a prophet in this city who can maybe tell us what we need to do about the donkeys. Saul had already lost heart. Three days of looking, he says, eh, no big deal. Let's just go home. He didn't recognize the value of those donkeys to his father. He was just ready to give up. And the man had never even heard of Samuel. He had no idea who he was. Do you honestly think that the greatest prophet in all the nation would be unknown to the son of one of the wealthiest men in all the tribe of Benjamin? But, but it's so much so that if you look down at verse 18, in verse 18 of 1 Samuel chapter 9, there's this point where Saul and his servant have gone into the city and they meet Samuel face to face. And in verse 18, Saul approached Samuel in the gate area and asked, uh, excuse me, sir, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? He didn't even know who Samuel was. 
are you kidding me? He had no idea. And Samuel has to tell him in verse 19, I am the seer. And then he gives him some instructions to go from there. So Saul obviously was not connected to what was going on in the nation of Israel. And there were lots of other things in the passage. And I thought, well, you know, maybe we could talk about what kind of leaders God chooses. And yeah, no, not so much. Well, then I thought about the whole thing about what Israel had asked for in chapter 8. They said, we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations have. Interesting phrase, like all the other nations have. That could mean they all have kings, we want a king too, or we want the type of king that all the other nations have. We are asking for a king. Well, let me let you know on a little secret. Guess what the name Saul means? The word Saul in Hebrew actually means asked for. Interesting. God says, okay, you want to ask for a king? I'll go so far as to give you a king whose name is asked for. And he was a lot like the other kings of the nations around him. He was impressive. One of the commentators I read said he would have been Mr. Israel if there had been such a competition. He was taller than everyone else, which, by the way, this is the only Israelite that is recognized as being taller than everyone else. Everyone else is tall in the Old Testament, always the enemies of God's people. That's an interesting concept in and of itself. So I thought about, well, maybe we talk about be careful what you ask for because you may get what, <laughs> what you ask for and it may not be what you want. So there were a lot of topics that we could have looked at today out of 1 Samuel chapter 9. God's sovereignty over seemingly random events. The lack of qualifications of this seemingly great king or the people of Israel and what they asked for and how maybe what they got was not what they thought they wanted. But then as I prayed through it and began talking to some friends of mine who were helping me work on the sermon for today and I have several people that I that pray with me and I talk with them I said what do you think about this servant? And one of them's eyes lit up and said, you know, I've been thinking about that all week long. That servant plays a pivotal role. And if you're like me, the first time you heard that passage read, all he was was a bit player that was standing just back into the right of Saul. The main characters were Saul and Samuel and, of course, God. Every passage of Scripture is about God. And I prayed about it. I read the passage again, looking through the eyes of this servant. And the Lord said, Steve, my son, that is the message for today. And so I want to share with you what I believe this passage teaches us about this servant. And that's why the name of today's teaching is the importance of the unimportant. Well, let's look at this guy just a minute. When Kish discovers that his donkeys are missing, he tells his son, Saul, to go out and look for the donkeys and take an attendant with him or a servant with him to look for the donkeys. Now, I wonder sometimes if part of the reason he told Saul that was probably for companionship, but also maybe he knew that Saul wasn't real competent at donkey hunting, okay? And so this servant that was chosen to go with Saul had to have built a reputation with this wealthy man, Kish, who owned lots of flocks, lots of herds, lots of donkeys, a very influential, very powerful person among the Benjaminites. And so before he ever 
got this task of going with Saul to look for these donkeys. He had already made a name for himself among Kish's servants. God had prepared his heart, the servant's heart, long before we ever get to this story. He had been faithfully serving day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. So that when the time came for somebody to go with Saul on this trip to look for these donkeys, Kish says, take an attendant, and this is the one that was chosen. So number one, the first thing I noticed was he must have been someone who had a good, good reputation with Kish and his son Saul. A reputation that had been built through faithful service over a long period of time. But then we get into the story. And it's interesting, Saul begins to lose heart. He wants to give up. We, we read verse 5 just a minute ago. But look at verse 6. Saul is ready to go back and give up on everything that's going on, everything that is happening, everything that, that, that he has tried to do to find these donkeys. And finally he just says, you know what? Let's just go home. And what does the servant say in verse 6? Look, the attendant said, there's a man of God in this city who is highly respected. Everything he says is sure to come true. Let's go there now. Maybe he'll tell us which way we should go. So number one, the servant had resources that Saul didn't have. He had a knowledge. He knew something that Saul didn't know. And then Saul says in verse 7, well, suppose we do go. What do we take the man? The food for our packs is gone. There's no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? Saul says, well, you know, we could go see this guy, but we shouldn't come without an offering. We should bring something as a gift to the Lord, and then he can share with us the information that we need. And in verse 8, the attendant answered Saul, Here, I have a piece of silver. It literally in the Hebrew is a fourth of a shekel. A shekel was a little round silver coin, and he had one-fourth of it. I have a fourth of a shekel of silver. I'll give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. So not only did this servant know something that Saul didn't know, he also had a resource that Saul didn't have. So not only did God prepare the heart of the servant all along to get him ready for this trip and what he was going to do, but he also provided the servant with tools and resources that he would need to accomplish the task. He had perseverance when Saul was ready to give up. He said, no, let's don't give up. Your dad sent us on this task. We need to finish it. He had knowledge that Saul didn't have, and he had that little quarter shekel of silver that Saul would need to be able to give as a gift when they met with Samuel. So he had a prepared heart. He had provisions that God had provided for him so he could do it. And the third thing he had was he had words in his mouth that I'm not sure even he understand, understood. God placed those words in his heart. We were right there at verse 8. So let's go back there just a second. And at the end of verse 8, it says, He will tell us our way. He will tell us our way. Interesting phrase. Now, maybe what the servant meant he would be, he would tell us where the donkeys are. But what he actually said was, he will tell us our way. The way that we should go. I think that's an interesting phrase. Because we know, because we know what happens at the end of the chapter, that Samuel, in fact, is going to tell Saul <laughs> his way. 
but it's not the way of finding donkeys. The donkeys have already been found. They've already wandered their way back home. They could find a home better than Saul could. They, but, but what he was going to tell him instead was the way that God had for him to go. By the way, in that same verse, in verse 6, he also says about the prophet, about Samuel, everything he says is sure to come true. Everything he says is sure to come true. So, you see, this servant, without maybe even realizing what he was saying, was saying things about Samuel, about Saul, and most importantly, about God. This is a man of God. Whatever he says is true, and he will tell us the way that we should go. So God put those words in his mouth. And fourthly, God planted loyalty in this servant's heart. Loyalty to Saul and an understanding of his role in the situation. I mean, let's just be honest here. Uh, the servant, could, and maybe he didn't, the Bible just doesn't tell us, but the servant easily could have been rolling his eyes at the son of his master and said, really? Are you kidding me? You don't know Samuel? You didn't come along with any money in your, in your purse or your pocket or your bag? You don't know you can't even find a bunch of donkeys. But he didn't. He was loyal to Saul. Let me just point out a couple of places, okay? Look at verse 22. In verse 22, this is after uh, Saul and Samuel have met. Samuel has said some things to Saul about who he is, and, and it kind of hints at what God is going to do. And in verse 22, it says, Samuel took Saul and his attendant. Now, isn't it interesting that the writer of 1 Samuel includes that little phrase? He took Saul and his attendant, brought them to the banquet hall, gave them a place at the head of the 30 or so men who had been invited. Saul goes into this wonderful banquet hall where they're having this feast, this festival of praise to God, and right there by Saul's side is his servant. And then when you get down to the very end of the chapter, if you look at verse 27, the very last verse of chapter 9, they've spent the night there. They're ready to get up the next morning. Samuel told Saul, don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. But in verse 27, it says, As they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the attendant to go on ahead of us, but you stay for a while, and I will reveal the word of God to you. And what did the servant do? So the, so the attendant went on. You see, in God's Word, there are no minor details. Everything carries meaning. And while I don't think we should try to find some deep, dark, hidden meaning in every little phrase, I do think as we read this story, we learn something about this servant and his loyalty to Saul. The fact that he was right there when they went into the city, they were there. When they go to the banquet, he is there with Saul. When they're leaving, he is together. And when Saul says, I want you to go on forward a ways, I'll be there in just a minute, he's fine with that. He goes right on. He was the model of a servant who was loyal and understood what his role was. So, just to recap, here we have this servant, okay? Number one, he had spent a lifetime while God prepared him for a very unique task that he was going to fulfill right here in chapter 9. Do you realize if it hadn't been for this servant, Saul may have never met Samuel? Well, we don't know that, but here's what we do know. We know that Saul used this servant, I mean, excuse me, that God used this servant to get Saul and Samuel at the same place. 
God had been preparing him all along. Secondly, that servant was given by God resources and tools that he needed to be able to do the job that God had for him. Knowledge, money, and perseverance. Thirdly, God placed words in his mouth that speak beyond even what he probably understood. And fourth, he understood his loyalty to his master, his loyalty to Saul, and his role in the process. Now you say, okay, Steve, that's great. Wonderful. You're right. I would have never even noticed that servant. But in the words of John Piper, I love it when Dr. Piper says, so what? So what? What does that mean to me? Well, let me tell you what I believe it means for you and for me today. Number one, sometimes we are like Saul. We are on a mission. We have a task, and we get discouraged, and we don't know what to do. We feel like God has abandoned us. We feel like um, we're not accomplishing anything. And God will bring into our lives people that may seem unimportant. It may just be somebody that we meet in the grocery store. It may be a fellow church member. It may be one of our children. Goodness knows how many times have one of my four boys spoken truth into my life that I needed to hear. Don't amen back there, Reese, Sam, okay? Stop that. But God brings people into our lives that on the surface may seem almost serendipitous, and yet God uses them to pour truth into our lives. Let me encourage you Always listen. Always listen. You never know when God is going to use a seemingly unimportant encounter with a person to tell you something that you need to hear. But more importantly than that, okay, that's an important point, but it's not my main point, and I don't think it's God's main point in this passage because we don't usually feel like Saul very often, but we often feel like that servant. Well, I don't know what I could do for the Lord, I'm a stay-at-home mom. I don't know what I could do for the Lord. I, I just work at a job. I go to work at 8. I come home at 5. I drive 40 minutes through traffic. What can I do for God? I, I'm just a student. I, I just go to high school or I'm going to be in college. And what can I do for God? I'm retired. I, I don't even have a role. I don't even serve on a committee in the church. I don't teach a Sunday school class. What in the world can I do for the Lord? We feel like we are unimportant in God's work, in God's great, grand master plan. Let me shake my proverbial finger at you and say, don't kid yourself. You may feel like you are unimportant, but on the authority of God's Word, I am telling you, you are not unimportant to Him. He is working a plan, and without you even knowing it, you may be the vital linchpin in that plan. So whatever you do, do not sell yourself short. God may have been preparing you for years, literally for years, for one encounter, one 30-second encounter with a person. And he may have taken 30 years to get you ready for that one moment. And someday when you get into eternity, that person that you had that brief encounter with will come to you and say, do you realize when you said to me, I'll be praying for you, that turned my life around and you're thinking, really? Because you see, that's how God works. 
He is preparing you even now. And so every moment of every day, you need to be watching and listening for opportunities for God to use you. He has given you resources and tools to use. He has put words in your mouth that you may not even understand how important they are in God's plan. Don't ever be afraid when God says, hey, I need you to share a word of encouragement with that person. You don't even know that. Just go over and say, I don't know you, but you look discouraged. You look distraught, and I just want you to know that God loves you. Don't ever shortchange yourself and the tools and resources that God has put into you. Don't ever think that the words that you have to say are unimportant. You may not understand how important they are, but God does, and God has a plan. And remain loyal. Remain loyal to Christ and the cause of the gospel. Remain loyal to be a servant to everyone that you see, everyone that you meet, everyone that you encounter, and understand what your role is. We are fellow workers with Christ. You see, I've been talking a lot these last few weeks about exalting God in all things, exalting Christ in all things. And I'm sure that sounds like a great phrase. I hope that you like it. I hope you begin to think it to yourself, exalting Christ in all things. And for the next however long the Lord (laughs) tells me to, I'm going to continue showing us ways in very practical areas that we can do that. You see, when you see yourself not as someone that is unimportant, not as someone who doesn't matter to the kingdom of God, not as someone who has no role to play. But when you see yourself as a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, a brother or sister with Christ, whom God is preparing for a special task, an important task, you begin to live your life in a totally different way. And everything that you're doing is exalting Christ as you watch and wait and listen and and share and talk and pray. All of those things are done now, not just serendipitously, not just casually, not just at random. They're being done with the idea that there's a purpose behind this. There's a reason. I may not know what the reason is, but I want to be God's servant. And in doing that, What we do is we exalt Christ, not just here at the beacon or here in this sanctuary, not just in a Sunday school class, not just in a Bible study, not just when we're doing some project for the church, not when we're just doing some type of mission event, but every day in everything as we talk to our children, as we talk to our spouses, as we talk to our parents, as we talk to our neighbors, as we talk to our friends, as we talk to our coworkers, everything that we're doing is designed to exalt, to lift up. Remember that word exalt. It comes from the same root word as the word altitude. To raise up above all other things. Christ in everything that we do. You are important to his plan. Don't ever forget that. You matter. God has a plan. And you may be just like this servant. The linchpin that can turn someone from darkness to light, from death to life, from being away from God to being back in God's circle and God's plan and God's will. Please, don't ever think you're unimportant. One of the things that I try to think about a little bit every day I have it on several cards in several different places in my life, so I'll see it from time to time. Is the line that says, 
God is most satisfied. No, excuse me. God is most honored with us when we are most satisfied with Him. In other words, when we find our full sense of fulfillment in Christ, He is glorified. He is honored. He is exalted. He is praised. So I want to ask you as we finish, where do you find your greatest fulfillment? Where do you find your greatest fulfillment in life? There are lots of things that can make you feel good about yourself, about your life, about what's going on. It could be your, your, your spouse, your marriage, your kids, your grandkids, um, your job, your career, um, your health. Uh, there are a lot of things. But please, listen. Everything in your life will cease when you die except your relationship to Christ. And so if we can learn together to find our greatest and deepest fulfillment in Him, then He will get the glory and we will receive the joy and the blessing. So just like this servant, just like you, stay-at-home mom, just like you, employee dad, just like you, high school student, college student, just like you, unemployed young adult, just like you, retired person, whoever you are, wherever God has placed you, find your fulfillment in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Father, we sing that song all the time. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. I pray that as we look at this story from the life of Saul, this story from the life of Samuel, this story from the life of Israel, we will look at it and see the story of the life of a servant. A young man who probably had no idea that he would be the key character that brought these two big characters together in one place. Father, we have no idea how you're going to use us today, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, next decade. We have no idea. What we do know is that you will do what you're going to do when we yield ourselves to you, see ourselves as co-laborers with Christ, and find our deepest and greatest fulfillment not in a paycheck, not in a marriage, not in a child or a grandchild, not in a motor home or a big house or a fancy car or good health, but our greatest fulfillment in our relationship to your Son, our Savior. For it's in his name and for the sake of the kingdom that you are building to give him, we pray.